Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we are in the uh, continuing in the book of Exodus this morning. We are uh, in this interesting scene where it is pre-revelation, but sort of revelation. Uh, so generally, we think of Sinai as revelation, and, and Matan Torah happens um, with all of the people and the thunder and the lightning and the fire and the whatever, and the whole Torah is revealed to Moshe over 40 days. We know how that ends. Um, and But but we often kind of skip this whole section that we're going to look at today. We read it only every three years. Um, and um, I don't know, this year it kind of was like, oh, right, there's this whole thing that happens before Matan Torah at Sinai. So let's, um, we're going to take a look at our text. And of course, we're going to unpack it together. Um, and we're going to spend some time because I know I always tell you, um, so the rabbis spend a lot of time and a lot of spill a lot of ink on this phrase. Um, and often then we just go on to what I want to talk about. Um, so this morning, I thought, well, why don't we why don't we walk through an example of that? So um, we have a phrase. Um, this is for you. We have a phrase that is very much um, discussed in the Talmudic literature and in even modern commentary. And so we're going to take that phrase actually and look at it and, it, and it, its representation um, and commentaries by the rabbis. Okay, so that's the plan. We'll see how much of it we get done. So here's our text. So it begins with this promise uh, by God. So, I, behold, I will send before you uh, an angel, a malach, right, to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Hishamer mipanav. So, listen to, I mean, like, shomer. So, d- do what this malach says. Ushma bekolo. And listen to his voice, meaning obey. Do not defy him, for he will not pardon your offenses, since my name is in him. But if you obey its voice and you do everything that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I annihilate them. You shall not bow down to their gods in worship or follow their practices, but shall tear them down and smash their pillars to bits. You shall serve Yotevafe, your God, and God will bless your bread and your water. I will remove sickness from your midst. No woman in your land shall miscarry or be barren. I will let you enjoy the full count of your days. I will send forth my terror before you, and I will throw into panic all the people among whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn tail before you. I will send a plague ahead of you and it shall drive out before you the Hivites, the Canaanites and the Hittites. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply to your hurt. I will drive them out before you little by little until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your borders from the Sea of Reeds to the Sea of Philistia and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hands and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not remain in your land, lest they cause you to sin against me, for you will serve their gods and they will prove a snare to you. All right. So one set of questions that comes from this is... uh, how come uh, we hear about so many Canaanites that are still in the land way after the people have settled the land? So that became a problem, right? <laughs> like, so if there had been like some fantasy of wiping out the locals, it never happened. If you look at the book of Joshua, it is very clear that most of the tribes and in their territories, there are the original folks, the Hittites, the Jebusites. Right. All of these folks are still around and certain towns were never in Israelite control. They remained in the control of these other peoples. Um, And so Torah has a bit of a problem um, 
how does that get explained? Here's one of the, a couple of the sentences that get added to the story to explain it. And that is, I'm not going to send them all out all at one time, says God, because y'all are too small to occupy all the land. And if the land isn't occupied, if I drive them out and nobody's occupying that land, it will become a haven for wildlife. And that wildlife will be dangerous to your settlements. Therefore, it's going to happen little by little, slowly, slowly. What we know is that it never happened, right? This this we know from the historical record. Um, the material culture um, never changed dramatically from Canaanite to Israelite, which means Israelite culture arose out of Canaanite culture. Um, it was not like, an, what do you call it, a, an invasion. Um, and we know, even looking at our own texts, we know that, that those folks remained in the land. So, <clears throat> so this is one theme, one idea, like what, what do we do with the fact that lots of places it says they're going to be driven out and lots of places um, it has to get mitigated because that didn't happen. Okay. So let's, and so, and I always just want to say that because there are places where it's a fantasy and we don't love that. We're not terribly proud of that. Of course, this is human history. All of human history is about um, migrations, whether it's by war, whether it's peaceful, whether it's because of a drought, whether it's because of earthquake, whether it's because of a tsunami, like migration is the story of human history. Um, I, I read the book Sapiens um, by Yuval Harari and like that. There's there's no place that whoever started there is still there. <laughs> there's no place. So um, so I know we're not proud of it, and I'm not proud of it that we had a fantasy of you know of taking over and kicking other people out, which is why I think I always need to say it didn't happen. It just didn't happen. Israel's Israelites took control. Israelites had political power. It became an Israelite nation, yes, but there was never this wiping out of the local population. All right, so now we have chapter 24, God speaking to Moshe. And God says to Moshe, come up to Yudhe Vafe with, with Aaron, Nadav, and Avihu, and 70 elders of Israel, and bow low from afar. Moses alone shall come near to Yotevafe, but the others shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Moses went and repeated to the people all the commands of Yotevafe and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice, saying, All the things that Yotevafe has commanded, we will do. The big question that I don't know why I haven't really focused on before is what is Moshe revealing? What is Moshe telling them? We don't have Sinai yet. So what things? So there's an argument in the rabbinic literature about what this is. Kol divrei Adonai. What are the words of God? Ve'et kol hamishpatim. And all the laws. What laws? We don't have Sinai yet. What's going on? Um, right? And all the people answer as one. Every, everything that God has spoken, we will do. All right. So keep that in your head. Their answer is everything that God has spoken, we will do. So God speaks and Moshe tells them, Moshe speaks to them what God spoke and they agreed to do everything God spoke. All right. Now look what happens. So first of all, what? What laws? We don't have revelation yet. Okay, so that's a question. Vayichtov Moshe et kol divrei Adonai. So now we have Moshe writing down all of the words of God and getting up early in the morning. Vayven mizbeach tacharahar. And at the foot of the mountain, he builds a, uh, what do you call it? Um, what's it called? The thing you sacrifice on. An altar. Um, and... And he put up 12 matzevot, 12 stone uh, pillars, if you will, um, for the 12 tribes of Israel. All right. So we have Moshe repeating all of the words of God to the people. And now Moshe writes it down. He designated some young men among the Israelites and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as offerings of well-being to God. 
Moshe took one part of the blood and put it in basins and the other part of the blood he dashed against the altar. Then he took the record of the covenant. So now it's Sefer Habrit. So the scroll of the covenant. And he reads it to the people. So now Moshe takes this scroll on which he wrote the words of God and he reads it to the people. Is this, did he write down the same stuff he just told them before? And if not, where did he get more material? Where did he get more stuff? He hasn't been back up to hang out with God. So what's going on here? What we know is that he, he orally tells the people, they say, we will do it. Now he writes it down and he takes the scroll and he reads the scroll to the people and they answer everything that God has spoken. We will do it. And literally we will hear it. We will do and we will hear probably here in this case is just like the angel. Listen to the angel's voice means obey the angel. But the rabbis want to stay with a literal reading of this. We will do and we will hear. And the way they interpret this, a lot of them, is we will do and then we'll hear about what it is we're supposed to do. That they agree before they hear what they're supposed to do, because we know revelation is still coming. Okay. So, but the rabbis need to deal with what this is. First of all, what is Moshe telling them? What are they agreeing to? And what do we do with that vis-a-vis Mount Sinai and revelation and revealing Torah? What, what are we to do with this? And Moshe took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that yud heh now makes with you concerning all these commands. Then Moshe and Aaron and Nadav and Avihu and the 70 elders of Israel ascended and they saw the God of Israel under God's feet. There was the likeness of a pavement of sapphire, like the very sky for purity. Yet God did not raise God's hands against the leaders of the Israelites. They beheld God and they ate and they drank. And God said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. And I will give you the stone tablets with the teachings and commandments, which I have inscribed to instruct them. Now we have another problem, right? What is going on the tablets? God says, come up, right? And I will give you the stone tablets, the Torah, the Hamitzvah, Asher Katafti, Lehorotan. I'll give you the stone tablets, Torah Vehamitzvah, and the and the teaching and the commandment that I have written to instruct them. That is not people, the Ten Commandments. Nowhere is Aserata Dibrot called Hatorah Vehamitzvah. But we do have this phrase in other places, and it means exactly what you would think, Torah and mitzvot, right? Like the whole revelation of Torah. But so what is it that's going exactly on these tablets that Moshe is going to get? We don't know. So, some rabbis, of course, need to harmonize this with the Aserita Dibrot, and they wanted the Ten Commandments, the Ten Things, the Ten Utterances, and they want to argue all of Torah and mitzvah derive from one of the ten utterances, they're very clever, all of Torah and all of mitzvah derives from the principles of one of the ten utterances. And therefore, you can call the Aserita Dibrot Torah and mitzvah. It's pushing it. It's a huge stretch. It is clearly a separate tradition. There is clearly another tradition where Moses receives stone tablets carved by God that do not have the Ten Commandments on them. It has another collection of mitzvot. What are those mitzvot? Possibly all of the laws of this Torah portion that we just saw, that we didn't study. But if you look back, 
Bert Kleinman's, one of his favorite pieces of Torah, um, all of these laws from what is called the covenant code, because they're making a covenant here. It is a covenant they make with Yudhe complete with all of the Mishpatim, all the laws that we have in this Torah portion. We believe probably one tradition is that that's what's happening here. All of those laws become a code of law that Moshe knows orally and tells the people, then writes it down as Sefer Habrit, which we just saw, the scroll of the covenant. And then God gives Moshe stone tablets. Think the code of Hammurabi written on stone. Um, so stone tablets with the covenant code on them. Okay. So Moshe and his attendant Joshua rose and Moshe ascended the mountain of God to the elders. He had said, wait for us here until we return to you. You have Aharon and who are with you. Let anyone who has a legal matter approach them. When Moshe had ascended the mountain, the cloud covered the mountain. Vaishkon kvod Adonai al-Hahar, right? It's al-Hahar Sinai. So the kvod of God Yishkons um, dwells. This is where we get right. Shechina, Mishkan, all come from this, right? This verb lishachen to dwell. So the kavod, the glory, the presence of God dwells on Har Sinai, comes down on Har Sinai, and covered it. What covered it? A cloud for six days, and on the seventh day. God called to Moshe from the midst of the cloud. The presence of Yudhe appeared in the sight of the Israelites as a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. Moshe went inside the cloud and ascended the mountain, and Moshe remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And that is the end of our Parsha. Okay. Is there anything going on for anybody so far? Uh, the promise God makes of delivering all to his people, cursing those who curse us, suggest that either God can't deliver or that we have brought our own disastrous history upon ourselves with no, I have no idea what's happening here. So if whoever that is wants to say something, is that you, Lisa? Yeah, yeah, it's me. It's just that, you know, when you hear this promise being made, I will curse all those who curse you and bless all those who bless you. And, um, and doesn't deliver because obviously that hasn't happened. Um, what does that mean? Uh, either God can't deliver on that promise or we have brought this all on ourselves by being bad <laughs> in some way and we deserve it all. So what does that all say about this God who walks away from that responsibility for his faithless people, I suppose? So you you answered most of it. <laughs> right? I did. Yes. <laughs> If you have to defend this God, mm. then the only defense possible is that we deserved it. Yeah. Because this is all conditional. If you obey me, if you follow my commandments, if, 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 then it is all conditional. And we did not keep up our end of the condition. Mm-hmm. That's the only way you can defend this God. If you don't have to defend this God, there's no problem. Right? Like this is a fantasy. This is a fantasy told by the people that God loves us best. God will take care of us. God will hate the people that hate us. That's a fantasy. Okay, great. We can just accept that. Right. But folks who really have to take this seriously and defend this God have a problem. And so the answer to that problem is generally because we didn't keep up our end of the bargain. It was always conditional all along. Where do you you come down with that? I mean, what's. I don't have to defend this God. This for me is Israelite fantasy. Mm. I'm fine with that. It's in the Torah. It says that. Amy, in the the prior portion, Yitro, we have the Ten Commandments. Uh Uh-huh. Where God says to Moses, tell this to the Israelite people. Why isn't that what he told the Israelite people in this portion? Because it says, HaTorah VeHaMitzvah. And Sefer Habrit is not the Aserat Hadibrot. Okay, so so they never say that what he did was communicate the Ten Commandments. Well, some people who need to harmonize all of this business want to go there, and then they have to defend it. So like I said, some rabbis who need to defend this traditional commentary say HaTorah HaMitzvah derive from the Ten Commandments, so it can mean the Ten Commandments. 
other rabbis want to take out that phrase, Hatorah HaMitzvah, and say that's parenthetical. But you can't do that because then you're left with God kataving, God writing stone tablets, which you can't have. So you can't just excise those words, but they try, right? So there are all these creative ways to try to misread this to mean Aseret Hadibrot, because clearly we have a variant tradition here. That there's another set of stone tablets that Moshe gets. Remember, he hasn't even broken the first set yet. We haven't had the golden calf yet. So why is he getting more tablets? What's happening here? It's clearly a variant tradition. Um, And if you go to the Torah.com, there's a whole article walking through the the three scenarios that are stuck together because there are three variant traditions that have to be put together by the editor. And um, that's why we have um, the text as we have it. So go to the Torah.com, this week's Parsha, Mishpatim, and there's an article about um, this whole business. Okay. Lisa, I know that was not satisfying. However, it is true even today that if you go to people and say, go to Jewish fundamentalists and say, how could the Holocaust happen? What are they going to say? What was God sleeping? Did God forget that we're God's? To- what, what do they say? You know what they say. Oh, it's because of gay people getting married and people not lighting Shabbos candles. That's their answer. That is their answer? Yes. It's our fault. There's no other way to explain it if God is all powerful, all knowing, and all good. There's no other explanation that works. I'm not saying I buy it. I'm saying if you have to preserve all three of those things, then the only answer is God is just. And how how is the only way God is just and something terrible happens to us is because we deserved it. Right. But right? to put yourself in that sort of a problematic situation just for the the lovely feeling that we'll get those who will get you. You know, it's, it's a nice promise, but um, it's a fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. That I'm daddy's favorite. Mm-hmm. But we're not observant enough to hold up our end of that bargain. It's like you say, the ultra ultra Orthodox, they don't do every single thing that is commanded of them. So God gets to blame themselves. You deserve it. Right. It's the way you can make sense of a world where you need God to be in control of everything and remain all good. I don't have that problem, fortunately or unfortunately. Right. So for you, this just is, if you just cancel it out, this is no, I take very seriously. Israelites in that world needed to think this way. They needed to feel like they were Yudhe Bave's favorites and that God would protect them. Well, we still feel that way. Many- sure. So I take that very seriously. I, I just don't take it as literally true. It's not. It's it's a hu- it's human beings writing their deepest longings is to feel protected. Right. Mm-hmm. We all, of course, want that. I just won't compromise my intellectual integrity to believe that it's true. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And actually, I'm at the deathbed. A lot of times, and I say to people, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart, you are safe. You are held. You are seen and known and will be carried. You are surrounded. You are safe. So, you know, on some level, do I stay there? Yeah. That I believe ultimately we are protected. We're safe. I just don't mean some God on a mountain zapping my enemies when I say that, right? I mean, ultimately, existentially, there's nothing we can be but safe because I believe in a loving universe. Mm. But th- but that's also something I choose to believe, obviously, right? There, there's choice even there mm-hmm. in what we quote unquote actually do believe. Yeah. Well, that's a little bit different than what is being promised here, which is vengeance. Correct. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Amy, did yes. I hear you say there were 12 tablets at one point? Did no, it- 12 pillars, 12, 12 pillars. statues that Moshe puts up, one for each of the tribes. Okay. Right. So Thank representing you. that all the tribes make up this nation, because remember, a lot of the, the point of writing down these stories is to make the 12 tribes into a nation. 
Remember? And sometimes it's like, we have to think backwards. You know, like we think this happens then, but actually it's right. It's way later after these stories are already separate traditions for these tribes. You got to take all the stories and write them down so that those 12 tribes can become the nation of Israel. That's why these stories are written down. And it's why you have to have the three different versions because you have to have the North and the South, right? You have to have both or else the one half of your nation isn't going to buy the book and isn't going to buy into the story. Okay. So you have to have all the variant traditions of all the different tribes so that this, this national narrative can create a nation. And that's totally backwards from how we tend to think about it. I have prepared for you a source sheet. So here's, here's our verse. And he, Moshe, Vayikach Sefer Habrit, took the book of the covenant and read it in the ears of the nation. And they said, everything that Yudhei Vafei has said, Na'asevah Nishma, we will we will hear, we will do, and we will hear. Translated here, already, remember, all translation is an interpretation. Here it's translated as all that God has spoken, we will faithfully do. We will obey, essentially, right? So they already have translated nishma as obey rather than listen or hear. So Rashbam, one of our famous commentators, says, na'aseva nishma, and a lot of the rabbis agree with him. We will carry out what God has said already, meaning all the things that Moshe just wrote down. And we are also prepared to listen, meaning to obey, but to hear what God will command from here on out, which is going to mean the rest of Revelation. And for the rabbis, not just Revelation that's coming on Sinai, but also what else? All halacha that will ever be decided by the rabbis Is impossible pork kosher or not? We agree, nishma, we will listen to whatever it is that is decided that becomes the law. And that's the oral Torah, Talmud, right? That is the oral Torah and everything that derives from written Torah in terms of halacha and halachic decisions, right? Um, And so this is very clever. This is very clever and in some ways very self-serving of the rabbis. What does that line of Torah mean? It means we will listen to what we've heard already and to whatever y'all tell us <laughs> for all time is what we're supposed to do. Okay. First of all, that's a fantasy right there. The Jews listen t- to anybody. Oh my God. All right. Um, so now we go to the Talmud. So the Talmud has a very interesting story here. Rabbi Elazar said, When the Jewish people accorded precedence to the declaration, we will do over we will hear, meaning they say first, Naaseh, we'll do, and then Nishma, then we will hear, a divine voice, a bat kol, a very famous character in the Talmud, a bat kol, a daughter of the voice, Um, meaning somehow, and that's a whole other class, like how does that mean God, but it means God, a daughter of the voice is, is a part of the divine speaking. And what does the bot Cole say? Who revealed to my children this secret that the ministering angels use, the Malachi Hasharit that we sing about, right? As it is written, bless Adonai, you angels of God, you mighty in strength that fulfill his word, hearkening unto the voice of his word, right? So picking up on the Psalms, uh, this is, remember, I've told you this, but I don't show you enough. I don't show you guys enough. Um, This is rabbinic playground. The rabbinic, what's in a rabbinic sandbox? Verses of Torah. And this is their joy, is to take verses of Torah and make them talk across centuries, across texts to each other. And that is the rabbinic game that if you're really, really good at it, you become famous. So think about Amy, what's her chops on Jeopardy, right? She 
but she knew how to play the game and become became famous and rich uh, because of it. The rabbis who could really play this game became our famous uh, rabbis and scholars and superstars. So how clever they take this verse from Psalms. What does this verse from Psalms say? It says, here's the quote. It begins here. Dichtiv, that's how you know a quote is coming as it is written. Quote, Baruchu Yudhe Vafe Malachav, Gibore Koach, Ose Devaro, who do his words, Lishmoa Bikol Devaro, and listen, hear, hearken, whatever, to the sound of his words. Beresha, first it says Ose, do, Vahadar Lishmoa, and afterwards it says Lishmoa. Wow. That's exactly like what we just saw the Israelites say. Naaseh benishma. Well, says God, that's very tricky. The Israelites, who told them that this is what the angels do? Who tattled? Who leaked information from the ministering angels to the Israelites? Beautiful play on this concept of aseh. And Lishmoa. Love this. I, this is my favorite stuff they do. I really should do more of this with y'all. All right. Here's what Zornberg says about that. At first sight, the idea of doing before hearing implies a kind of rashness, a lack of circumspect, circums, circumspection, meaning say we're just going to do it and we don't even know what we're going to do. That can seem a little rash, right? Like what if you're supposed to jump off a bridge? Rashi, in fact, directly addresses this when he observes that the Israelite response is different from that of other servants who first listen to the command to find out whether they are able to accept it or not. This very rashness, however, she says, is called by God the secret of the angels. Implicit in this description is the idea of a modality generally inaccessible to the human. Rather archly, God chides the people for making use of an esoteric order of things. Who revealed this to you is, of course, a covert compliment to the angelic virtue within an apparent irrationality. In saying we shall do and we shall hear, the Talmud implies here, the people assume some of the virtuosity of the angels who are capable precisely of such a brilliant power of action. All right, that's a Zornberg is very hard for me sometimes to unpack, but essentially what she's saying is it can look rash that they're crazy, right? Like, why would you agree to do something before you know what the heck it is you're supposed to do? That's just dumb. But Rashi says, right, that that this the Israelites in this moment are avadim, are servants of a different kind right? They don't listen like most servants do. Let me, let me get what the master wants and then I can figure out whether I'm able to do that or not. No, God, God lets us know that it's the secret of the angels. The angels act that way all the time, but usually human beings cannot access that way of working in the world. But here in this moment, the Talmud makes this an kind of a miraculous moment. They reach a level of being avadim, of being servants to God, that is like the ministering angels. Okay. So what, what, is, what is she saying? I think what she's saying is usually we listen to what, what it is we're going to have to agree to. And then we agree or we say, I just really can't do that. I'm super busy right now, right? When do we, when do we live like this? Na'aseh nishma. When do we live like this? In other places in the chapter, I, I took this out of her book, The Particulars of Rapture. And in other places in that chapter, she uh, quotes Emmanuel Levinas, um, who says, when do we live like this? When we are in true relationship, right? Your partner has non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Can you handle the treatment or not? You don't ask, what is it? Then I'll decide whether or not we can do it, <laughs> right? Like, there are moments we are called into being in relationship in a way that's not a sevenishma. Yes, I will do it. And then we'll find out what that is. But yes, of course, I will do it. 
It's in response to relationship. And that's what Zoranberg argues the people understand here and get and experience. Revelation happens in the light of a face, capital F, and that it is in response to that relationship that is the appropriate response to truly meeting the other, capital O, truly being in relationship. The answer is always na'aseh benishma. Yes, I will do it. And then we'll figure out what that is. Or then you'll tell me what that is, right? Your, your friend comes to you, your best friend comes to you and says, I need a favor. I'm desperate. I need a favor. You don't ask what it is first, <clears throat> right? You say, of course, how can I help? I love that interpretation of Na'asev and Ishma. I think it's beautiful. It's really, really profound and really beautiful. And of course, if revelation is happening all the time, which our tradition teaches, then are we really listening from a place of Na'asev and Ishma? Usually not. <clears throat> All right. So this is um, from Likute Moharan, written by Re- uh, Rebbe Nachman of Bratslav. Y'all have heard us talk about him a lot. Here's some of his teaching on this verse. For we will do and we will hear corresponds to concepts hidden and revealed. We will do is synonymous with the revealed, the precepts that each and every person can fulfill commensurate with their level. Listen for his language. He's a Kabbalist. Listen for his language. And we will hear is synonymous with the hidden, that which is elevated and hidden from a person so that a person is incapable of serving God with this. All right, stay with me. I know it sounds twisted, but stay with me. What is he saying? This is about spiritual work. There are things that are revealed and things that are hidden. <clears throat> we can only serve God, says Rabbi Natan Nachman. We can only serve God with that which we understand and know and can do. And there are things that remain hidden that we can't do yet because we don't know them yet. For example, every precept has that which accompanies it. Aside from the command recorded in the Torah to fulfill the precept, there are additional statements in the Torah, such as, and God spoke to Moshe as well as the other statements of the Torah surrounding the precept. Okay, so he's saying every word is revealed. Every word is truth. So you get a commandment, but then somewhere next to it, it says, and God spoke to Moses saying, well, what do you do with those words? Those aren't revealed Torah. That's just parenthetical. And he says, no, that's exactly not true. And God spoke to Moshe contains something within it that's hidden. It's not obvious. Now, the service which is contained in these Torah statements accompanying the the mitzvah corresponds to we will hear, meaning we will hear what's hidden. For the mitzvah itself, which we can fulfill, is called na'aseh, we will do. But the service contained in these statements, we have no knowledge of corresponding to we will hear, meaning we're going to try to listen for what's hidden. Okay, so hang with me. Don't worry, Aviva Zornberg to the rescue. The two dimensions of Na'asev and Nishma are to be found at every level and in all worlds. Moving from one level to another, one's previous Nishma, an area of hiddenness, becomes one's new Na'asev, one's area of fulfillment, and one acquires a new area of Nishma, of hiddenness. In this difficult passage, Rabbi Nachman maps the world as consisting of nuclei of commandments, of required acts, surrounded by areolas of words that tease us out of thought. These areolas, the language is explicitly circular, pass one's understanding, yet clearly they are part of the field of consciousness. They form a kind of horizon, a sense of presence of the not yet known. So as we grow in our capacity for spiritual practice, let's say I start meditating. I learn to sit for three minutes. That was not easy, by the way, (laughs) for me to learn to sit for three minutes was not easy, right? So we learn to sit for three minutes. That now becomes na'aseh. We can do it because we've achieved it. Now there's a new nishma. There's a new hidden element of sitting for seven minutes that we haven't achieved yet. Do you see what I'm saying? 
And it's not until you can sit for three minutes that you can begin to sense what it might be like to sit for seven minutes, even though we haven't achieved it yet. And I don't know how to do it yet. I do actually, but um, right. But let's say I'm not there yet. That's what remains nishma hidden. And then as we achieve seven minutes, what then, right? Maybe it's, what about walking meditation? I never thought that would be interesting, but now that I've sat in silence for seven minutes, I could see how being in a walking meditation might be the next level of my practice. So do you see what Rabbi Nachman is saying? What, what's our na'aseh right now is our nishma. Uh, uh, our, our nishma becomes our na'aseh as we achieve that, the ability to do what's until now been hidden. And then we sense a new hidden as we reach that new level. Okay? A beautiful interpretation of, of the spiritual life, of spiritual work. It never ends. As soon as you achieve a na'aseh, you have a new nishma. Once you achieve something... Now you have a new goal, if you will, because you, you sent something else now that you've reached this new level. Okay. <clears throat> I love this one. Pierre Cage, Rabbi Eliezer, I just thought I'd throw it in there for fun because it's fun. Rabbi Pinchas said, on the eve of Sabbath, the Israelites stood at Mount Sinai, arranged with the men apart and the women apart, right? Remember, don't go near a woman for three days. The Holy One, blessed be God, said to Moshe, go speak to the daughters of Israel asking them whether they wish to receive the Torah. Why were the women asked first? Because the way of men is to follow the opinion of women. As it is said, thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, these are the women. And tell them, the children of Israel, these are the men. They all replied with one mouth. But you have to love that even at the time of the writing of Pirkei to Rabbi Eliezer, they understood why did God go to the women first? Because he knew that's where he'd get a yes. And if God got a yes from the women, then the men would go along. What do they know? <laughs> oh, God. Okay. There are so, this is from uh, Menachem Mendel of Kutsk, uh, as interpreted by Larry Kushner and Kerry Olitsky. There are so many wise men, scholars, and philosophers in the world, all of them pondering, investigation, and delving into the mystery of God. And why do they misuse their wisdom? They only misuse it because they are limited by their intellectual level and perceptual capacity. But the people of Israel, says Menachem Mendel of Kutsk, are a holy people. They possess special instruments that elevate their perceptual capacity and enable them to transcend the level of their intellect and attain the level of ministering angels themselves. Right. So the Kutsker Rebbe is referring back to that story in the Talmud. They are able to achieve, the people of Israel, right? The level of ministering angels themselves. And these are the instruments, the performance of mitzvot. Watch what he just did. How does Israel get there? How does Israel get to the level of the ministering angels? Doing the mitzvot. They're the instruments. But what we just saw was they got there before all the mitzvot have been revealed. But it's very self-serving, right? Of the people who are practitioners of mitzvot to say, how did they reach the level of the angels? Of course. By performing the mitzvot, those are the instruments. This is just what Israel said when they stood at Mount Sinai, we will do and we will hear. Through the power of doing the mitzvot, we perform, we are able to understand. (laughs) Jews are so clever. Okay. Sefer HaChinuch, a person is acted upon according to his actions and his heart and all his thoughts always follow after the action that he does, whether good or bad. And even he who in his heart is a complete sinner and all the desires of his heart are only for evil, if his spirit shall be enlightened and he will put his efforts and actions to persist in Torah and commandments, even if not for the sake of heaven, he shall immediately incline towards the good. And from that which is not for his own sake comes that which is for its own sake, as opposed to for personal gain, for hearts are drawn after action, right? So na'asevanishma, what you do, is what you come to understand. What you do will determine who you are. So even if you do it for not good reasons at the beginning, if you're doing the right thing, eventually you live into that and become a better person and the same the other way, right? If somebody constantly works in that wicked craft, eventually from his righteousness, he shall be, have become completely evil. For it is known 
and true that every person is acted upon according to his actions. So this is another approach, right? Um, somebody who's writing about Sefer HaChinuch, somebody who's writing about education, somebody who's writing about learning, um, learning and doing, how do they relate to each other? And the suggestion here from Sefer HaChinuch um, from you know, the 1200s is that what you do determines who you are, whatever your intentions started as. Rabbi Elizabeth Bonnie Cohen writes on this. She's talking about Moshe, and I thought this was compelling. My mind returns to Moshe as he writes out each letter by hand. So she's asking, why does Moshe tell the people they agree, and now he's going to go write it down and read it to them again? It's like Department of Redundancy Department. Why does he have to do this? Stroke by tedious stroke. Why was this really necessary? Prior to writing down God's words, Moshe transmitted them to the people orally. He instructed them about all the laws and commandments that God had told to him directly. And the people respond, Naseh, we will do. Okay, Gamarnu, it should end there. Based on this, the people fully expected that they would act in accordance with what God wanted on account of what they heard from Moses. So it seems somewhat extraneous to then go and write down these same words and give it to the people again. And they answer, right, Naseh Nishma. I want to suggest, she says, and by the way, she, she was learning scribal tradition. She was learning to be a scribe. I want to suggest, or she was learning from a scribe and was actually writing words of Torah. I want to suggest that the act of writing down the Torah has a transformational effect on the people's relationship to it. And I see the material artist, Judith Ubik, nodding her head in agreement. Uh, sorry, sorry. See, Nishma can also be understood not just at we will listen or obey, but also as we will pay attention. And I like to believe that the painstaking attention Moses gave to writing each letter of the Torah modeled for the people their call, our call, to take it seriously in our lives, to pay attention to the sacred that surrounds us in every moment, in every stroke of the quill. We're not just expected to live out the commandments blindly, doing them exactly as we've been instructed, but rather we're called to pay close attention to their role in our lives and the value of these ritual actions. In an age when we could easily photocopy or print off the text of the Torah in minutes, instead we continue to rely on the handwritten work and careful attention of scribes, taking a year to a year and a half to complete a single scroll. We do this in part to remind us of our commitment, not only to do, na'aseh, but also nishma, to pay attention to every stroke of every letter of our lives. May this tedious and focused work transform our experience, evoking for us new opportunities to connect with that which is sacred. May the intentionality we bring to our actions elevate them to divine encounter. And may we strive to appreciate even the smallest strokes of the quill that leaves a mark on our lives and the lives of those around us. <laughs> Jody's clapping, right? Beautiful, beautiful teaching. Um, don't worry, Bert, we have Jonathan Sachs. Not to worry, not to worry. We will do and we will understand. From this, they derive the conclusion that we can only understand Judaism by doing it, by performing the commands and living a Jewish life. In the beginning is the deed. Only then comes the grasp, the insight, the comprehension. I'm not going to walk through this whole piece. You can print it out. You can see it. Um, but I loved, I mean, this is so Jonathan Sachs and so Jewish that we we do it. And then we try it on and you do it for a while. And it often takes a long time of doing it, right? Before we guess we get it. The grasping, the insight, the comprehension often comes later, right? So you, this is why I'm doing that class, another advertisement for why do we do that? Because I want y'all to try some stuff on. I want to try some new stuff on, right? You've never put on a talit. Let's try it. You've never kissed a mezuzah going in and out of a room. Okay, we're going to talk about why we do that. And then try it on. Do it for two weeks. See what happens, right? So that's what Jonathan Sachs is saying. That's what Naaseh Nishma means. We'll do it and then we'll understand. Doesn't come first. <laughs> Getting the point of it doesn't come first. We have to do some stuff before we can actually have the experience of getting it, right? When we can find God by seeking God, we can find God by seeking God, but sometimes God finds us when we least expect it. That is the difference between Naaseh and Nishma. 
we do the godly deed together. We respond to God's commands with one voice, but we hear God's presence in many ways. For though God is one, we are all different and we encounter God each in our own way. Okay. That is my reflection on Anasa Banishma to give you some sense of how a Torah verse right appears in, in classical commentary from Rashbam, from in the Talmud. Then what do people do with what's in the Talmud, right? They go back and they say, oh, this is about us being like the ministering angels. Well, that comes from Talmud. This stuff is in the, is much later than that, all the way into contemporary um, understandings. This is the beauty of Torah that, um, yeah, I told you I was in a book group with my Episcopalian colleague, um, Rabbi, Rabbi, Reverend Bruce Freeman, <laughs> right? I hope you would see that as a compliment. Um, so uh, Reverend Bruce Freeman, the rector of the Episcopalian church. And I, I, I sat with them and listened to how they and the author we were looking at understand Jews' relationships to Torah. And I realized people don't get it. People really do not get it. They think the Old Testament is what we go to and, and that that's kind of where, where the, the writing ends, like that we go to Joel and we go to Ezekiel and we go to, and I'm like, okay, first of all, Jews know nothing about Joel or Ezekiel, nothing, or Kings, nothing. We stop really at Deuteronomy for the most part. And what, what people don't understand about our tradition is, but it doesn't mean interpretation of those words stopped. It's, we just didn't write a whole bunch of new texts. We keep reading the new ideas back into the old text. That's what, that's what they don't get. I don't, I'm not being very clear here. But it was like, because they said, well, what, what do you all do with the concept of Messiah? Because it's all over the Old Testament. It's all over your Torah. I'm like, mm, no, it's not. Messiah is nowhere in the Torah. But that's not a concept they have because their concept of the Old Testament is all the places in Isaiah that they read the Messiah into, right? And I'm like, it's not all over the Torah. The Mashiach is nowhere in the Torah. It's in, you know, Tanakh. It's in some of the later, you know, writings that are associated, yes, as part of the Old Testament, as part of, you know, the Hebrew scriptures. But we really deal with Torah. And we read all of our new ideas back into the actual words of the actual five books of Moses. I know I'm not being clear, but anyway, I I found it very interesting that that people don't get that that Naaseb Anishma has a history that's 2000 years long, right? In terms of how we interpret those same words. We We don't leave them and go to Joel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and leave these words over here. Do you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, no, those words don't get interpreted once, like translated, and then we're done. Like, we continue to read all of our new insights into those words. That's how we deal with Torah that I think nobody really understands about us and our relationship to scripture. And here we are on Zoom, going over 2,000 years, actually 3,000 years of Jewish commentary and there, there's an argument that says that Torah really is the interaction of the Jewish people with the text and not just the text. Right, for sure. And, and that's, that's the piece, right? I think people don't get, right? Torah is our interacting with the text. You know, the, the Midrash is that the Torah is black fire on white fire and our work is the white fire, right? Uh, the, the work of, of, engaging with Torah is the the work of interpreting the white fire, the space between each letter, the space between the words Um, that that's that, that work is ongoing. That that's revelation that's ongoing, the white fire, which gives Um, a new meaning to breed. Yes. Uh, And and covenant is about agreeing to continue to hear revelation. Naaseh will do what we understand. Vanishma. And we're ready to listen and, here into what we would now understand as an obligation living in 2022 America. Isn't it the essence of Reconstructionism? Yes, for sure, 100 million percent, right? Is that revelation is ongoing and Judaism is an evolving religious civilization and we are proud of the verb evolving. Right. 
that we are proud of that. And I don't know anybody if they're honest, even a black hat. I I don't know anybody if they're honest who wants to go back to sacrifice. Right. It's like I believe all Jews are really secretly proud of evolution in within the tradition. Right. They would say it's just ongoing, that we're still receiving it from Sinai. Fine. That's fine. If <laughs> that's fine. But my point is, like, I think all Jews are secretly proud that that our tradition has evolved and continues to evolve. Within orthodoxy, would Torah study on Zoom be OK? Well, not on Shabbos. Right. Well, it's not Shabbos yet. So right now, yes, but yeah. not on Shabbos, right? Because then you're using technology. You're using electricity on Shabbos. I just got a call from an Orthodox friend, ultra-Orthodox friend, who said, wow, you're studying Torah on Zoom? I said, yes. yes and he course. said, that, that's amazing. <laughs> yes, Rita. it's amazing. I have we'll a stop at nothing to study. I have a question about the word rapture. I was surprised to hear one of the commentaries, uh, you know, titles for thing about rapture. I never thought of that as a Jewish concept. So Rita, don't read it as the rapture. It's not the rapture. It's rapture, which is very sexy. Like think about rapture, right? Her first book about Genesis is called the beginning of desire. (laughs) <laughs> and her second book on Exodus is the particulars of rapture. So Genesis is about desire and, but it's like not, but, and it's universal, right? The per, uh, And then Exodus is the story of us becoming a people yearning and longing for rapture. And so that's the particulars of rapture. So her whole approach is that it's all about desire. It's all about rapture and desire and the ways that we shy away from it and the ways that we kind of self-destruct, <laughs> if you will, around it. So remember when I talked last week or whatever week that was about weaning in the desert, about the longing for the breast and the rage when it's taken away and the fear when God withdraws and, and wanting to touch God, like that's this is very much Sornberg, you know, is that it's really about our desire and that that's a good thing. That desire is a good thing. And like, if you look at the song of Psalms, song of songs, um, a lot of that language, right. Is really, she reads that into many of these other texts and, and she's just genius and brilliant and fantastic and amazing um, coming out of the Orthodox world. Just amazing. Uh, I think she has a photographic memory. I think she doesn't forget anything she's ever read for real. Um, and so she's very, very, very well read in the realm of literature and human psychology and human development, like like Winnicott, you know, like infant development. Um, and I don't think she has ever forgotten every, anything she's read because she will pull things together, reading them into the Torah text that I'm like... Y- how do you do like I don't know how she she must have a photographic memory. So um anyways, so that's a long answer. I cannot recommend her highly enough. Go get both of those books. <laughs> and she finally did one on uh on numbers, which is called uh Bewilderments about wandering in the wilderness. Um, but she, fantastic. She's just and everyone knows it, everyone quotes her, everyone studies her, everyone, you know, she's just universally recognized as as a genius. Can you talk about the place of angels in Judaism? That's something we don't hear often discussed. Yeah, so it's in rabbinic um, literature. There is a very, very developed angelology um, that is Talmudic and later. Um, The rabbis live in a world hugely populated by the angelic world. Um, All the cultures surrounding the rabbis have a major angelology. And so the rabbis aren't going to be left behind. So we have a very, very well-developed angelology um, that goes from Talmud through Kabbalah, um, through uh, early Jewish mysticism, and then into later Jewish mysticism as well. Um, So that's hundreds of years of developing that body of thought and literature. So it's way too much to cover. Um, But you can, there are so many, I did my, I did my paper on um, my biblical year paper on, on angels and on biblical angelology. 
Um, and then for my uh, rabbinic year paper, we had to do a big paper at the end of each of our years at rabbinical school. For my rabbinic year, I did the angel of death. But that shows you from the biblical period to the rabbinic period, I couldn't do a paper the rabbinic year on angels. The topic was too big by, by the rabbinic period. I had to narrow it down to the angel of death. What does the personification of death in the angel of death tell us about what the rabbis thought about death? Um, so angels are all, uh, are all uh, messengers. Yes. Yes. And they all have a job. Like all of the angels have a job. There are the archangels, Gabriel, Raphael, Michael, the archangels have their work. Then each of the nations has an angel that argues on their behalf. Satan, um, Satan is the prosecuting angel. um, And Satan's job is to be the prosecutor. So if you think about what a prosecutor does in a court, that's Satan um, originates as the prosecuting angel. Always trying to prosecute Israel. And later, of course, becomes Satan and later Satan becomes associated with the angel of death and all that kind of stuff. Um, But anyway, so there's plenty of places to go look, truly. But but you have to kind of know what you want to know, because the topic is huge, huge, really huge. So either, you know, do you want to know about the rabbinic period, like in the Talmud? What do they do with that? Do you want to know about Kabbalah? Do you want because it's it's a huge body of of material. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.